chapter 28, verse 10. Meanwhile, Jacob left Beersheba and set out for Haran. He reached a certain place where he decided to camp because the sun had gone down. He took one of the stones and placed it near his head. Then he fell asleep in that place. Now here's the irony. The firstborn title brings two things with it. I think I've said it before, but repetition is the hallmark of Jewish literature and the key to learning. The firstborn title brings headship over the entire clan, tribe, whatever you're over. That gives you headship, kingship, authority over everything. The other thing it brings is a double land inheritance, double animal inheritance, whatever it is that your father is invested in. He just got that. Yet where is he? Outside the land of promise, with no family to be head over, and he has nothing with him to be any kind of double inheritance. So even though through his own efforts and his own works and his own mother's works and intelligence, he cleverly gained the headship title, he has nothing. In name, he has everything, but in reality, he has nothing because he got it through his own means and not by trusting in God. Not trusting God. So now he's out in the desert as a pathetic fool who's using a rock as a pillow. I mean, how desperate do you have to be on the run? Now, there might be a sense that the, the rock, depending on the wording, scholars don't know what to do with this. The rock could either be placed under his head or he'd arrange the rocks around his head for protection from like scorpions and that kind of stuff. Still, he's either using a rock as a pillow, which is desperate, or he's using rocks to protect himself from scorpions because he really should be in his own tent ruling over his family with this incredible amount of wealth. The reality is he is in the desert with nothing. But even more important than that is he's leaving the promised land. And remember we've made the point that leaving the land of promise is to be outside the blessings of God. There is no blessing of God outside the land. There is no blessing of God outside the land. And then in the night, he fell asleep and he had a vision. And he saw a stairway erected from earth all the way up into the heavens or the skies. And the angels of God were going up and coming down. This vision, this is a weird vision. It's not a ladder. So a lot of your old translations might say ladder because that's where we get the idea of Jacob's ladder. But the word there is not ladder. The, more, the idea is more of a stairway, like steps ascending. But the imagery that is here is the ziggurat. This is the Tower of Babel. This is ziggurat. Because this is the only stairway that any kind of a person would ever have in their man, mind. It's not like gone with the wind kind of a stairway. Those, those don't uh, exist yet. And so... He sees a ziggurat, and you're like, oh, okay, God, you're going to use a pagan temple to make a point to Jacob? Yes. What is going on here? In the Tower of Babel, who was ascending the tower? People. To get where? To heaven. To make a name for themselves. But in this vision, who's ascending and descending the Tower of Babel? The angels. And so, remember I mentioned a while ago, we're going to have this constant theme 
of when man is trying to redeem himself, he'll always be moving up. But when God always goes into action, he's always coming down. And so God came down into the garden with Adam and Eve. God came down and spoke to Cain. God stooped down to see what was happening at the Tower of Babel. God came down and walked and ate with Abraham to give him a blessing. God came down to see what was happening in Son of Gomorrah. God is coming down the stairway in Jacob's vision. And so the idea here is, you've been trying to ascend the Tower of Babel to get the blessing on your own, Jacob, but I'm the one that comes down to you. And he uses an image that the culture understands, but redefines it, because that's what God does. He uses the language that they understand, but he communicates a different message. And that should be a lesson. One of the most effective ways of evangelism is to use the language of the culture, but use it to redefine what they understand about the culture. And so this is what God, you see God doing this all the time in the Bible. He's constantly using worldly and culturally images and words, but using them and redefining the definitions of everything. And this is what he's communicating. And then God says this, I am Yahweh, the God of your grandfather Abraham, the God of your father Isaac. Now, whenever you see that, and the later will be Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, it is always invoking the Abrahamic covenant. And God is making two points here. He's reminding them and invoking the Abrahamic covenant. But the second thing that he's doing here is that most of the time, the pagan gods were known as the God of the sun the God of the earth, the God of the ocean, the God of whatever. But God, most of the time when he introduces himself, he introduces himself in one of two ways. If he, if he adds something to his name, a descriptor, he is the God of heavens and earth, meaning everything, not just one thing. But if he does refer to anything in creation, he is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I am a relational God of people. All the pagan gods were nature gods. But God is communicating that he is a relational God of people. That is what you are to know him by. People, relations, community. And so he invokes the Abrahamic covenant and defines himself in a way that no pagan god has ever defined themselves. Other pagan gods might be the god, the patron god of hunting or the patron god of fishermen but not the God of specific family names and people in that sense. Vocations. But vocation is not the same thing as people. And then he says, I will give you in your descendants the ground that you're lying on. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth and you will spread out to the west and the east and the north and the south and all the families of the earth will pronounce blessings on one another using your name and that of your descendants. I am with you. I will protect you in whatever you go and will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Why did God bless Jacob? Because he made a promise to Abraham. Why Jacob and I Esau? Because he doesn't say. He doesn't say, because you obeyed me, like he did to Abraham. He doesn't say, because you have faith, and I'll credit to your righteousness, like he did to Abraham. He says, because I made a promise to Abraham and Isaac. And why are you not Esau? The world will never know. That's the whole point of Romans 
9, 10, 11. We don't know why. God chooses whom he will, and he rejects whom he will. Now, the other thing I may need to make a point here too, do not interpret this as an election predestination the way that we think of it in a post-Calvinistic debate kind of a way. For us, when we think choosing and rejecting, the Calvinistic debate, which Calvin himself wasn't even a Calvinist. It was his followers who made him out. But he actually wasn't a Calvinist at all. And the idea that God chooses you to be saved, but he chooses you to go to hell. That's the modern-day Calvinist debate. Remember, that's not what God means. By choosing, he means to represent me, to be my chosen people, whom I will bless and will go into the world and bless others. But remember, what, is they, what are they supposed to do? To be a blessing to the entire world. So the idea is by choosing Jacob, Jacob is supposed to go to the world and bless them and include them in his family, even going to Esau and trying to get Esau to be included into his family so that Esau ends up being blessing. Whenever you see the language of choosing and rejecting in the First Testament, it has nothing to do with salvation. It has everything to do with ambassadorship. And so it's the same way that if I was like, I can either try to go to the entire world and share my message, or I can choose you to represent me and my message and then send you out into the world for the goal that everybody in the world will know my message. And that's what you must understand this. is Remember, Paul is saying that the Jews are supposed to be a blessing to everybody. That's why he chose the Jews. But then when he rejects the Jews in Romans 9, 10, 11 and goes to the Gentile, the idea is that the Gentiles are supposed to go to the Jews first and then everybody else. So the, this isn't salvation predestination election. This is who will be my image, who will be my representatives, who will be my ambassadors. And so the idea is that's what he means here. So don't think Esau's been rejected into hell against his will. He's been rejected as my team for the purpose that this team will go out and get Esau and bring him back. And in fact, that's exactly what Paul goes on to make is at the end of Romans um, 9, 10, 11, he'll make the point, and I look forward to the day that all, the nations, which would include Esau, would be a part of the chosen people of God. So he makes the point that Esau's been rejected, but then turns around and makes the point that Esau will be one day a part of the group because the chosen people will do what they're supposed to do. And so that's important to understand that election is not salvation, the First Testament. Election is ambassadorship, image, representation, for the goal of getting everybody into that. And so this is what he blesses him with. Now notice what God says. I will be with you. I will protect you. I will bless you to bring you back to the land. Now he never said that to Abraham because Abraham was in the land. And only one time did Abraham leave the land and God kicked him right back into the land very quickly. But he knows that Jacob is going away for a long time. And God says, I'm leaving the land with you because I'm a God that has no limits. But I am going with you, and I will bless you outside the land only for the sake of bringing you back, because this is where you belong. So every year that he's not in the land is not good. But God transcends borders and will be with him. But God made a promise to put them in this land. 
And so notice, this is very important. Just as the gate for the garden faces east, and moving eastward is bad, Adam and Eve in their judgment, Cain in his judgment, the Tower of Babel after they're scattered, Lot moving east towards Sodom and Gomorrah, moving eastward is bad. And Jacob is now moving eastward out of the land of promise. And just as there were angels guarding the garden, he encounters angels as he leaves the land. There's only one other time that Jacob is going to encounter angels, and that's 20 years later as he comes back in the land. And that reinforces the idea that he's leaving the garden and coming back into the garden, so to speak. And so it's not good. He's now leaving the bounds of the promised land. So he says, I will with you, I'll protect you. Then Jacob woke up and thought, surely Yahweh is in this place. But I did not realize it. He was afraid and said, what an awesome place this is. This is nothing else than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. Now everything says there to you, you completely missed the point of what God was saying. Notice that when they built the Tower of Babel, they called it heaven's gate. Jacob sees a stairway to heaven and calls it, this is heaven's gate. God says, I will bless you and bring you back into the land. And Jacob's outside the land or at the border. And Jacob's saying, this place, this place, God is in this place. God blesses this place. God place. Notice what he's focusing on is the place. And he names it Bethel, house of God or gate of God. And so when Jacob encounters this, he sees the place as magical, as holy, as special. He misses that this isn't the gateway of heaven. This is not where God is. He missed that I am God of people. He doesn't quite get it. And so in some ways he's there because he erects a monument to God. But here's the other thing. He ends up erecting this stone and placed it near his head and set it up as a sacred stone and he poured oil on top of it. Now notice he took the stone that was near to his head during the vision and put that at the top of it. The word used for this stone, this memorial, is the same word used of the altars that God condemns throughout the entire Bible. And then by pouring oil over it, he makes it a sacred stone. So this doesn't become a memorial to what God has done, this becomes a pagan altar of sacrifice, so to speak. Even though he doesn't sacrifice, that's the imagery here. And so he goes and he builds what God is going to condemn. Now, and in some ways, he doesn't have the law to know that God has condemned this kind of an altar. But at the same time, he's doing something that God does not approve of. So, because remember, God doesn't change his mind on what he approves of and what he doesn't approve of. So it's still not the best way to honor God by building something that he's later going to forbid as a pagan altar. But what do you expect from a Jacob who doesn't really seem to have a relationship with God? But notice that God blesses him despite that. Because here's the thing. How else is he supposed to know who God is? Notice that when we would typically see people do something like that, our knee-jerk reaction would be to judge them and remove them from our presence as evil pagan people. And I can't believe they did that. But when people do that in the Bible, God presses into them deeper. 
Because how else are those people supposed to know that there's something different and better and what they're doing is wrong without a relationship from God walking with them? The reality is, yes, there's certain people you probably should pull away from with, so that you will not become morally compromised yourself. But at the same time, if that's not your weakness, that doesn't mean you pull away from them completely. You should press into them so that they'll know God. Now, it's a little more done through prayer and community with us because we have weaknesses. But our pulling away, because I don't want to be tempted, is completely different than most reasons why we pull away, which tends to be more of shock and judgmentalness. And yet God doesn't do that. He presses into Jacob all the more. So Jacob made a vow saying, if God is with me, it's always dangerous to start vows like that. If God is with me, he just made that point. I am with you. I will protect you. I will go with you. I will stay with you. And I will be with you forever until I have done what I promise. Well, if God is really with me and protects me on his journey, I am taking and gives me food to eat and clothing to wear, and I return safely to my father's house, then Yahweh will become my God. And then this stone that I have set up as a sacred stone will be the house of God, Bethel. I will surely give you back a tenth of everything you give me. If you make good on your promises, God, then I will worship you. Notice how God says, you really haven't done jack crap in your relationship with me, but I'm going to bless you. And Jacob responds by saying, if you actually do something, then I'll worship you. He completely missed the point. And it's going to take over 30 years for him to honor that vow. God is going to bless him in the first 7 to 14 years. I mean, he'll bless him before that, but it becomes overwhelmingly obvious in the first 7 to 14 years. But it's not until his family completely falls apart in the most dysfunctional family you've probably have ever seen that he finally wakes up and realizes, I should probably get right with God and honor that vow. And it'll be chapter 35 before he does it, which is 30-something years. You're like, oh, it's only five chapters away. Well, it's 30-something years. 